Hello, welcome to the podcast Healing of Emotional Wounds. My name is Alan Mulhan. Today we continue our topic of integration. The integration process, characterized as the fourth stage of psychotherapy, is divided into three parts. The evaluation of the health of the material that comes from the psyche was the first point we examined. The more healthy or whole this is, the easier and more robust tends to be the integration of the contents that arise from the unconscious. In our last podcast, we began to examine the second point, that is, the capacity to work psychologically with the material from the unconscious, and eight aspects of this capacity were mentioned. So how can therapists ask this vital question? Can the client work with the contents of the unconscious and the material that arises in the course of the therapy? It is tempting to presume that all clients can work equally well, but this is not the case. The variation in this capacity is as wide as the capacity to play a musical instrument or to do mathematics. In my work as a supervisor, that is supervising other therapists' work with their clients, I have noticed that sometimes, after considerable effort by the therapist and client, progress is nevertheless limited. This might be down to the therapist, or the relationship, or the method of work. But a useful question to pose is what evidence do we have that the client can work psychologically? This podcast will help you pose this question in the broadest possible way. I am presenting a model to help our understanding of the whole process. With a model, we break down, analyse abstractly, the sequence and staging of the whole depth psychotherapy process, as well as of its different parts. Sometimes psychotherapy does indeed follow such stages, but frequently it has its own unique course. The points we examine in this podcast illustrate this, because while the major integration ideally takes place at the end of therapy, there is also a process of integration taking place throughout. The eight points described in more detail in this talk are relevant to this whole process of psychotherapy, that is, the capacity to work psychologically with the contents of the psyche. It is simply one of the most important questions the therapist can ponder concerning the client, for if this capacity is very limited, then clearly in-depth work is also limited. Let us examine, therefore, in more detail these eight dimensions that characterised the second part of the integration process, the capacity of the client to work psychologically. An unfavourable psychological attitude prevents the process of integration even beginning. So what then is a favourable psychological attitude? The eight points we mention are in degrees of complexity, and the closer the client is to working with all eight, then the greater the process of integration one can expect. Firstly, a capacity to look inwards is essential for psychotherapy to be effective. Otherwise, there can be no character examination or change. The therapist has the task of fostering and developing this attitude in the client, not only at the start of therapy, but also during it. Introspection, despite appearances to the contrary, is not easy. Even the dream world, which concerns principally the inner world, at first glance seems to be largely concerned with stories and people from the outer world. For example, dreams of one's children being lost or in danger are quite common. 
Great emotion usually occurs, and of course there is a desire to rescue the children. These dreams may occur when the dreamer's children are in no objective danger at all, or they may occur with dreamers who have no children. Rather than referring to outside real people, they are symbols of something immensely precious in the psyche, such as spontaneity, capacity for play, pleasure, innocence, growth, or the soul that is endangered. Dreams frequently, though not always, dramatise a story of outer events and people symbolising parts of oneself. The outer story tells the tale of an inner truth. The purpose of psychotherapy is to find this inner truth for which introspection clearly is a prerequisite. It is tempting to believe that when clients share their intimate feelings, they are inevitably talking of their inner world. However, much of this is really about the outer world or other people, family and friends, as they impact upon the subject. Deeper work is more interior than this. For example, a father has an argument with his son, after which he feels not only enraged, but lonely and self-pitying. He comes to psychotherapy feeling damaged, but at the same time hardened. During the session, he has a fantasy, quite shocking to him, that he feels betrayed by his mother and shoots her. Our interpretation, worked out jointly, is not a reductive one tracing back some supposed violent feelings to a mother complex. Rather, it is mainly an inner event, psychological event, of which the mother is a symbol of a quality in himself that he has symbolically murdered, that is, his capacity to love his son, indeed, his capacity to love in general. He has become hardened. His inner world is dramatically representing, in symbolic terms, what he is doing to parts of his own psyche. He is destroying his loving capacity. The moral standpoint of the unconscious is to insist on the damage he is doing to himself. It is not primarily concerned with the outer event and whether he should have argued so badly with his son. It is concerned with the inner disposition and the impact on himself of this anger. The father had a number of interpretations on offer, and this was the one that made complete sense to him, producing, moreover, dramatic change in his inner world and behaviour. One year later, he proved to have held on to this interpretation and could show how fruitful it had been in helping him in his family dynamic. A great deal of the material of the deep psyche concerns not outer events, but the functioning of the psyche as a whole. It expresses this in symbols and drama, using events and people from the outside world as its setting, props and dramatis personae. Secondly, the capacity to contact and express emotion, the second dimension of this capacity to work psychologically. Psychological wounds lie within the emotional structure, obviously, Cognitive intelligence, when highly developed, can be an obstacle to emotional exploration, since when the conscious mind is dominated by this rational function, access to the deeper psyche, in its emotional and spiritual functioning, can be blocked. In these cases, the therapist may direct the client away from rational understanding towards emotional engagement. Apart from an overdevelopment of rational functions, there is also the blunting or underdevelopment of emotions, which clearly inhibit 
the ability to contact and express the contents of the deep psyche. The ability to contact and express emotion is simply the single most important platform for deeper work. Without it, depth psychotherapy stops in its tracks. In order to let the deep psyche speak, one has to allow metaphors to flourish. The metaphorical approach is a good start to loosening up the psyche, so it learns to express its feelings and intuitions. It might begin with the expression of feelings, which have to be in metaphors such as I feel like I'm being torn in two. A physical image, that is, describing a feeling in the inner world. The ability to use metaphor extensively across the range of the psyche's activities is fundamental to its search for meaning. Developed metaphor is related to the expressiveness of the psyche and is instrumental to healing intelligence. Besides contacting and expressing emotion, a further development is to access the truth in them. In order to do this, it is necessary that the controlling ego is suspended and a capacity is developed to listen to and observe these emotions so they naturally reveal their truth and messages. This faculty is explained by Gendlin in an experiential focusing method and was highly correlated with successful outcome in brief therapy. So it's not only in long-term therapy, but in all types of therapy, that the ability to contact emotion in a meaningful, deep manner is vital. Thirdly, to see oneself and others more objectively, the third dimension. Now, while introspection is necessary, it is by no means sufficient for effective psychotherapy. In fact, it can be counterproductive when not balanced with some objectivity. The ego can make progress if it sees itself from the viewpoint of trustworthy others. It should stop seeing everything from its own self-interest, and hopefully it may even empathise with others. An interesting way to get some truth about one's character is to ask an honest, intelligent, reliable friend, and then really listen. In addition, the ability to see others more objectively is to lessen one's own projections onto them, especially those that are highly distorted and damaging. When projections are withdrawn, there is greater self-responsibility, introspective capacity and ownership of one's emotions. Humility is the start of all proper inner work. As we progress looking at these dimensions, although we are referring to the client and asking the question of the client's capacity to work psychologically, exactly the same questions apply to the therapist. The fourth dimension is the acceptance of self-responsibility. A healthy psychological attitude accepts responsibility for one's actions and for their effect on others. Suppose someone does not accept that his own character explains a great deal of what happens in his life. He thinks of himself as a victim with no responsibility for what happens to himself. Everything bad in his life is the fault of other people. Thus, there is no psychological attitude to work with, since there is no self-reflection. An attitude of victimhood is the antithesis of the psychological one. At the same time, an excessive psychological attitude is unhelpful, such as the view that absolutely everything is one's own responsibility, or that one has somehow chosen one's parents, for example, no matter how abusive they may have been, or a car accident one has suffered, 
are somehow chosen or destined. Attempting to do in-depth work and exploring motives and events in one's life starts from the platform of self-responsibility. You remember Shakespeare's phrase in Julius Caesar, the fault de Brutus is not in our stars, but in ourselves, that we are underlings. You'll notice as we progress that we are talking about balanced capacities. So the acceptance of a psychological attitude of self-responsibility, but up to a certain extent. Of course, one has to see what is objectively true in one's life and what one has suffered. That comes from without. But at the same time, explore how much, frequently a great deal, of one's life events are explained by one's character. It's the balance that's important, isn't it? Fifthly, awareness that one's psyche consists of different but interrelated parts. These are related together, ideally in a total system which is self-balancing. However, in practice, there are often divergent components which are in opposition to one another and cause disharmony and suffering. Some of the well-known psychological implications of this view of the psyche have become incorporated into modern psychological thinking. For example, the very idea of the conscious and the unconscious. The Jungian view of the shadow. The concept of projections, defence mechanisms, various complexes, superiority, inferiority complexes being the most well-known, and different psychological functions, such as thinking and feeling, intuition, sensation. Some acquaintance, therefore, with this way of thinking, that the psyche consists of an amalgam of parts, sometimes opposites, is beneficial to psychological work. At the same time, the opposite is also part of the equation, that as well as consisting of different parts, our psyche is also a whole. The sixth dimension. The conscious attitude is aligned to the unconscious, yes, but is also relatively independent. This implies that the client is neither cut off from nor over-identified with the deep psyche, but is rooted in a healthy dialogue with it. Ideally, there is a creative tension between these two positions. The conscious attitude must be prepared to question the material arising from the unconscious, not all necessarily of a beneficent nature. Darker aspects of the unconscious may emerge. Some of the material can be so powerful that the subject becomes inflated and possessed by its energies and the ideas flowing from it. A certain conscious and critical distance is required for proper reflection. Nevertheless, the ego has to recognise its place in the system of the psyche and be prepared to really listen with humility. In the case studies above, if you remember, Matthew is an example of someone who was over-identified with the contents of the deep psyche, while Stephen is insufficiently aligned and too remote from them. The task of the therapist in these cases is to understand the psychological position and capacity to work with the contents, in the one case being over-identified, in the other case being too little identified or aligned to the deep contents of the psyche. And therefore the therapist has to encourage either less identification in one case or greater alignment in the other. Seventhly, the existence of a symbolic attitude Here we're moving into the higher reaches of this capacity to work psychologically. The symbolic attitude. Symbol, in the Jungian sense, is a representation of something only partially known. 
since its roots lie in the depths of the unconscious. A symbol has manifold meanings. It's different from a sign and it's different from a straightforward allegorical understanding. For example, where something stands directly for something else in an allegory. But in a symbolic representation, the symbol represents many things. So the symbol of the sea may represent the mother, it may represent emotions, it may represent the deep unconscious. And like the sea, one only sees into it to a certain extent before it becomes darker and darker. So too, the great symbols which arise from the unconscious have a mysterious element to them, and one can only see into them so far. So, these symbols are rich, multi-layered, and can never be totally pinned down. The greatest symbols are continually reinvented to recreate meaning. The development of the symbolic attitude is at the higher reaches of the psychological attitude, and is especially linked to healing, since it reaches the unconscious, which expresses itself through symbols, thereby activating healing and transformative intelligence. And finally, eighthly, the ability to contact the contents of the deep psyche. Inner awareness, a special inner faculty that is open and unbiased, as in meditation and experiential focusing, is an example of this. It can access the material from the deep psyche and facilitate its integration. It also possesses great healing power. This is not ordinary self-reflection, but a very special introspective function, a pure awareness of one's inner world. A high-level psychological attitude is one engaging in such self-reflection in an extremely open manner, willing to encounter new and sometimes surprising aspects of oneself. A narrow belief system, religious dogma, spiritually fixed views, psychologically rigid opinions and theories are very unhelpful since they destroy this open attitude to self-inquiry. In summary, in a healthy psyche, the ego benefits by setting aside its traditional point of view, listening to its deeper psyche and to the views of trustworthy others regarding itself. The psyche advances by accepting responsibility and ceasing, whenever appropriate, to blame others. It benefits by accepting it has unconscious, or at least hidden, emotions, which are influencing behaviour. It progresses in self-understanding and self-control by an awareness of its defences and complexes. It is humbled, but becomes wiser by accepting its own shadow components. Therapeutic progress is enhanced if there is adequate expression and exploration of emotions while collaborative work with the deep psyche is promoted by a capacity for metaphor and symbol, as well as the facility of communicating with the deep psyche. The awakening of inner awareness, especially in its pure form, is of great benefit in promoting all aspects of personal knowledge and development. This capacity to work psychologically, to be tuned into the way the psyche works, and collaborate with its expressive potential is therefore the second major step in the integration process. Without it, progress is not possible. 
For those of you who wish to explore this material in more detail or to get a clearer overview of it, you may refer to my book, Healing Intelligence, The Spirit in Psychotherapy, Working with Darkness and Light. Our next podcast will deal with the last critical, difficult stage of the integration process, requiring character reform and a shift in the very centre of the personality. I hope you can join me next time. Thank you.